The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. I am not aware of any announcements. There may be others that have some. The one thing, it's more of a reminder than an announcement, which is, uh, I, I, I've said it, I said it last time I was up in front of you last week, but uh, do bear in mind the writing lab is available and highly recommended. So uh, please uh, set up a time. You know, you know how to work through the link. It's included in every weekly email, and I would I would really recommend it. Um, and the earlier the better. Uh, Melody is willing to help with every phase of paper writing from the very beginning, kind of outlining the general approach to the the finishing touches at the end. So. Uh, it may take multiple meetings, but that's okay. Uh, it'll it'll be well worth your while. So please take advantage of that. Yes, Ben. Um, I think it's March, November the sixth. We are doing a uh, community event. Okay. Called Harvest Happening. You can sign up on harvestpark.org. It's free to the public. Open to the public. We're trying to get more community in. Good. Um, so feel free to sign up. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of free things you can check out on hamptonpark.org. Hamptonpark.org. Okay. Thanks, Ben. Any other announcements? All right, prayer requests. Yes, Dr. Dyer. Um, Adam Christensen sent me an email. He woke up to the excruciating painful earache. And uh, he told me his wife was in pain. Wow. I've had that kind of frog. Yeah. So she did take him to the hospital or the doctor? Well, he said he was. She woke up. Oh, okay. So she would be. Good. Yeah, that's difficult. Uh, we'll, we'll keep in mind as well in prayer, Jocelyn Groff, um, who just gave birth on Saturday. And then uh, Jonathan Bartlett has, uh, he had a flu, uh, bad flu-like symptoms and uh, but he's, he keeps testing negative for COVID, so he doesn't think it's that. But it kind of came back today. It was getting a little better yesterday. It's worse again today. Hello, um, Dr. Piper. Do you want to introduce these friends? Yes, I would. Thank you, uh, Joe Harrell. I've heard y'all met. Joe is retired, kind of retired, but she's a missionary. Um, and this is Javier Munoz who is doing uh, education down in uh, Columbia and up visiting right now. He'll be at Calvary Presbytery. He'll be out at uh, Antioch tonight to make a presentation and then be at Calvary Presbytery this weekend. Yeah. And we'll be over after. Sunday night will be at Reformation. Okay. We do not have an invitation yet. <laughs> All right. All right. And then if you would like to talk to, to uh, Javier and uh, Great. Welcome. Welcome. Yeah. And do take advantage of that. We should also pray for the Presbyterian meeting tomorrow uh, that many, many are going to be participating in consequential items on the docket. So uh, be in prayer for the brothers in Calvary Presbytery, the PCA. Yes, Wilson. Um, I mentioned it yesterday, but I have a friend. He's 23 in the hospital on a ventilator with COVID. Wow. He just got married like a month ago. Oh, so wow. his wife is having to deal with this. 
you, you probably mentioned it yesterday. I wasn't here, but what's his name? Noah. Noah. And what's his wife's name? Madison. Okay. Yeah, David. Um, I just spoke with uh, Pastor Bill Shishko mm -hmm. in uh, Bohemia, and they are at, look, they've been looking for a building. Um, there is a possibility that another church that's gone from about 100 to now seven congregants mm. will, uh, are, they're considering giving the, church, the building wow. to uh to them so right now they're just the officers in that church are discussing all the implications of that so just pray for them that uh, one of the <coughs> officers actually attends the haven oh really so there are talks about giving building over so just you can pray for that good yeah yeah pastor shishko for those of you who, who don't know is a long long time friend of the seminary in fact i think going back to the very very beginning days and he's taught here over many years and had a significant influence on many of us. Yeah. Uh, two things. Um, one of our graduates, who's also my youngest daughter's father, okay. Steve Walton. Yep. Uh, is in the hospital with COVID. Um, and then also, um, as Kirk mentioned yesterday, we should continue to pray for Joe Hawk. Right. He's he's going through a very difficult and trying time right now. Uh, so just please let's keep him lifted up. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Dr. My family and I will be leaving tomorrow for Virginia. I'll be doing a conference there giving five talks. Good. All right. Let's stand. Sing 318, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer.
pray together. Our great creator, God, and our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can live in hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are confident of his return. We look forward to it, and we pray that we would live in light of it, that we would live in light of the great day of judgment promised in your word, that we would minister in the shadow of that. We thank you that in our time of need right now, we can approach your throne of grace, that you're a father who knows what we need before we ask, who loves us, who cares for us, who's numbered every hair on our heads. So, Father, we do come before you with particular needs this morning. We pray for our brother Adam and his severe earache. We ask that you might even now be ministering to him uh, in, a, in a comforting way. We pray that you would give wisdom to those doctors who are going to be treating him or who are treating him now. We would ask that you would see fit to glorify yourself in healing him, but we pray for your sustaining grace in the midst of this trial for as long as it lasts. We also thank you uh, again for the safe delivery of Zach and Jocelyn's new baby boy. We pray for Jocelyn in particular as she recovers from giving birth. We pray as well for this uh, young boy, Seth, that he might continue to grow and continue to be healthy, and that he might one day grow uh, and and profess clearly faith in you, that he might be used by you as, as a servant of yours. We ask for our brother Jonathan that you would minister to him, that you would comfort him during this. Uh, difficult flu that he's experiencing. Thank you for his continued desire to labor on your behalf, his continued desire to learn and to even log into his classes, his cheerfulness. But Father, we would ask that you would would be with him and strengthen him even in this hour. We pray for this very difficult news about Noah's condition We pray for his new wife, Madison. We ask that you would, as the God of all comfort, comfort her. And we pray that as the great physician, you might see fit, although it appears very dire to us, you might see fit to heal Noah even now. And yet, Lord, we know that in your wisdom, you ordain all things that come to pass. And so we ask that. Noah and Madison and all those friends and family who are surrounding them might continue to testify of your goodness and your faithfulness. Be with Wilson as he ministers in whatever ways he can, and we pray that they would have real gospel comfort during this time. We thank you for the good news about uh, that Bill Shishko brought about the possibility of this building being provided for them. We pray that you would continue to work out the details as you have seen fit to do up to this point, that they might indeed have a facility in which to worship regularly. We thank you for the the good work that you've done through Pastor Shishko for many decades. Father, what what an encouragement he is to us. What an example he is to us. And we ask that you would provide for his congregation even now in terms of this facility. We pray for others who are sick or struggling in various ways, for Steve Walton, who is also 
suffering from the effects of COVID. We pray that you would, as we asked with Noah, we pray that you might see fit to to heal him. But Lord, more than that, that you would enable him to continue to give a good testimony of your comfort in his life, provide for his needs even now. For our brother Joe Hom and all the difficulties he's experiencing, we pray that you would give him the strength that he needs for the tasks at hand. We know that this, these are very complicated situations that he's navigating. And so, Father, give him great wisdom and discernment. We thank you for his example of godliness and diligence in his studies up to this point. We know that he's had to pause those. And so we pray that you would bring him back to his uh, previous status of being able to study full-time with us. Uh, Father, meet his needs, we pray. We also ask that your spirit would bless abundantly Dr. Morales' ministry this weekend. We ask that you would watch over him and his family as they travel to Virginia, but that perhaps even more significantly, you would, by your spirit, work through your word to transform the hearts of those who are going to be hearing him this weekend. Give him clarity in his speaking and preaching. Give him power as he proclaims your word. May Jesus Christ be lifted up through his ministry. We would ask the same for the Presbytery meeting tomorrow. We pray that as the members of Calvary Presbytery gather together, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed and that all that is done would be guided and governed by your word. We ask the same thing for ourselves this morning. We thank you for the wonderful promises that attend the reading and preaching of your word. We ask that you would fulfill them in our midst even now. May your spirit take his word and and move in us to conform us to the image of Christ, to convict us of sin, to train us in righteousness, to thoroughly equip us for every good work. Use your living and active word Even this day, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, brothers, if you would remain standing, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's 16 verses long. I'll read the whole chapter, beginning in verse 1. Remember, as I read, as you follow along in your copy of God's Word, and even as you listen, this is the Word of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, 
because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and striving after wind. Let's pray together once more. Lord, bless your word. We ask even now. We need it. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So minister to us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. There's a familiar gospel track. Maybe you've seen this. Uh, it's, a, it's a track that I've seen in various churches in our circles. It's called Two Ways to Live. And perhaps you could quibble with various aspects of its presentation. But the point of the track, the point of the little booklet is that you can live as if you yourself are king. You can, as it were, put yourself on the throne of your life or You can submit yourself to the Lord, submit yourself to God and to his word. And each of these ways of living has with it all kinds of attendant uh, differences in terms of their outcome. And so the way in which it's presented is that by putting the Lord on the throne, you are submitting yourself to what he says about sin in your life and about the lordship of Jesus Christ and about the future promises. And there is a sense in which while this chapter does not follow the exact outline of that track. It does follow it in one aspect in that in this chapter, there are basically two tracks, two ways to live that are presented, two approaches to life that are presented. And one in the chapter is clearly presented as better than the other, Uh, but both, as we'll see, have with them their difficulties. Now, I want to give a little uh, description of the context of this because it's been a number of weeks since we've looked at the book of Ecclesiastes together. Remember that the book of Ecclesiastes begins with this phrase translated variously as meaningless, meaningless, or vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Different translations render it differently. I suggested to you back when we were looking at chapter one that perhaps the the most faithful way of rendering this, the, the way that perhaps best captures the imagery that's used in the book is the idea of life and and even human existence being the merest breath. It is a kind of a wisp that that we can never get our hands around. That seems to be what the author has in mind. And, And what he does, of course, in the book is he examines various approaches to life to see and to evaluate whether or not they change that fundamental reality. If we approach life in this way, if we pursue pleasure, or if we pursue work, or if we pursue riches, does that fundamentally change the equation? Does that, does that change the fact that life is itself the merest breath, this kind of wisp, this ephemeral thing that we can never quite wrap our arms around? And as we have seen, 
the writer approaches life from different perspectives, pursues different things, and ultimately reaches the same conclusion. He finds some paths are better than others, but none of them change that basic reality that he states at the beginning. Now, in this chapter, as I said, I think there are two ways to live that are presented, two approaches. The first one, I'll present this way. In the first one, the writer envisions living for oneself and by oneself. In other words, being alone throughout your life, flying through life on a solo mission. And that means that your end is aimed at yourself, but also you have no one to look out for you. Now, we see this as uh, presented first, I think, because in many respects, for many of us, this is our default setting. You might remember the beginning of Augustine's Confessions, and one of the striking features of the beginning of that book is he talks about his infancy. And of course, he acknowledges at the beginning that he doesn't actually remember his infancy. He doesn't remember being a baby, but then he extrapolates about what he must have been like by watching other babies, by watching other infants. And you remember, if you've read this, how he outlines the life of an infant. He says this infant will cry when he sees another baby getting more attention than he is, or or cry when he wants to be fed and has to wait for being fed. And Augustine's point is, is this, that even from infancy, we are, we are bent toward selfishness. We're bent toward self-absorption. And then, of course, what he outlines in his own life is that that just simply grew as he got older. He did more and more things that were overtly selfish. But his point was it starts from the very earliest stages of our life. And I think that's why in Ecclesiastes 4, living for yourself uh, is, is presented first. One of the problems, of course, with living for yourself in this chapter, as the the writer considers it, is that when you live for yourself, everything is a kind of zero-sum game. If you gain something, you gain it at the expense of someone else. And if they gain something, your perspective is they're gaining it at your expense. Life becomes a zero-sum game. Another way of talking about life as a zero-sum game is talking about life as a series of oppression. Look at what it, how he begins in chapter one. I saw, all, or sorry, in verse one. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. They're all alone. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there's no one to comfort them. This is as good a concise description of a life lived uh, in, a, in a solitary way, as you could find. What you have are oppressors and oppressed. And both of them share something in common. The oppressors have power, but they have no one. The oppressed have no power, and they have no one to comfort them in the midst of their oppression. This is how he views a life lived for oneself. It ultimately becomes oppressive. It necessarily becomes oppressive. And your only objective in life is to try to be on the side of the oppressor rather than on the side of the oppressed. Your only objective in life is to make sure that you're the one who gets to call the shots and gets all the advantages, whereas someone else is disadvantaged 
because of it. And what he concludes when he looks at this approach to life, this self-centered, zero-sum game approach to life, is that in fact, those who are already dead are better off than those who are alive. If you're caught up in this kind of zero-sum power game, then he says it would be better to be dead than to be alive. Because remember, if you're the oppressor, you're still all alone. And if you're the oppressed, you're all alone and you're suffering. That's why he says in verse 2, the dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. And he talks about the fact that all of this is an evil thing done under the sun. And then he explores it a little more fully in verses 4 through 8. He explores this idea of working only for yourself, seeing life as an oppressor and an oppressed kind of game. What he says is ultimately what happens in that case is it might motivate you to work very hard. In fact, it often does motivate people to work very hard. You'll hear people say, you, if you don't look out for yourself, no one else will. You have to do this. You have to go out and grab life or else no one else is going to help you. And what he says is that that indeed does happen, but, but what's the gain from all of it? Well, verse 4 answers the question very concisely. This is also vanity or, or, or a kind of reaching after a breath. What he says is it's striving after wind. And the reason why it's striving after wind is because even if in your hard work you win the game of life, you become the oppressor and not the oppressed, which is the definition in this understanding of life of winning. Even if you get there, even if you accumulate money, even if you set it up so that other people have to do your bidding, even if you surround yourself with people who make you more secure, what ends up happening is at the end, you die. And you die ultimately all alone. Look at verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. It's this vicious cycle. You're on a treadmill. You can't let up because you have to get it so that someone else doesn't get it first. His eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. And you see his diagnosis of all of this. If you live your life for yourself, if you, despite what you say to others, if ultimately your orientation is self and, and is, is, is on bringing security to yourself and bringing power to yourself, what he says is not only is that chasing after wind, but it's actually going to lead to deep unhappiness. And I don't think you have to be convinced of this. You can look at your own tendencies in life. You can look at your own past, and you can certainly look around you, and you see that this is the default setting of human beings. And what does it lead to? Sometimes it does lead to riches. Sometimes it does lead people to, to, to go beyond their, their, their normal abilities and to really excel in some way at getting. But in all their getting comes unhappiness, ultimately. 
The problem with all of this is that it really leaves you all alone. If not actually all alone, physically all alone, then metaphorically all alone. You reach the end and what you realize is you're all you have. You're the only one you can trust. You're the only one that you can confide in. And no one is really there for you. Now, what's the second way to live? The second alternative. The second alternative in Ecclesiastes 4 is to not live for oneself, but rather to live with and for others. Now, he he says right at the outset in verse 9 that this is a better alternative. We'll see if it's an ultimately satisfying alternative at the end, but he introduces it and says, this is a better way. If the first way, the natural way, the default setting, the way in which most people live their lives, if self-focused, the better way is to live with and for others. That's why he begins with two are better than one, because at the very least, they have a good reward for their toil. In other words, the work that you're doing, if you're doing it with and for others, actually ends up bringing a better reward. Not that you necessarily accumulate more wealth for yourself, but rather it actually in and of itself brings greater satisfaction. Now, we have to say when we tie this into the New Testament, the New Testament again and again urges us to continue to work hard. And to work hard, not just for ourselves, but for other people. We remember Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 3, where he says, If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their own work quietly and earn their own living. And you remember what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy very unequivocally. If a man won't provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever. So there is a sense in which what the, what the writer of Ecclesiastes is tapping into is something that we see repeated and refracted through the lens of the New Testament. Now, why is it better? Why is the reward better? Well, in verse 10, he tells us why the reward is better. The reward is better because when you're working with and for others, help can be given, for one thing, in times of trouble. Verse 10, if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. When you're continuing to act in a zero-sum way, in a selfish way, in the end, you can't trust anyone else to lift you up. More likely than not, they're operating under the same premises, and they're not actually going to help you. They may, in a superficial way, appear to provide some help, but the reality is they're out for themselves, and you're out for yourself. You see this in your, you've probably seen verse 10 played out in your own life as well. You see the great value, the great benefit that that comes when others have helped you in the past. In fact, you probably could look back on your life and think through certain occasions where someone has helped you, and that's indelibly imprinted in your mind. They may not even remember what they did or said, but it came at just the right time. The Lord used it in in your life in such a way to encourage you and to keep you going. This this reality in verse 10 is axiomatic when it comes to the Christian life. We see that uh, within the church, we're not meant to live as isolated individuals, 
What does the book of Hebrews tell us? We're to encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that we may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We're to bear one another's burdens, Paul says in Galatians, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's also, in verse 11 and 12, both comfort in friendships and protection in friendships. What, he, what does he say in verse 11? If two lie together, they keep warm. That can't happen when you're, by, when you're by yourself. And then in verse 12, he says, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. In other words, it brings all kinds of benefits because not only does your work give off a better reward, help can be received in times of trouble, and there's comfort and protection found in friendships. Now, with all of that in place, it's clear that the writer of Ecclesiastes believes if those are your two options, living for yourself or living with and for others, the better option by far, the far more desirable, the far wiser, the far more beneficial option is the second one, to live with and for others, to turn away from living for yourself, to turn away from thinking of your work as something that rewards you and you alone. No, we need to think in terms of others. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is clear about that. But there is a troubling twist that happens in the third section of this chapter. And it comes in verses 13 through 16. It's actually in the form of a parable or a little story that the writer tells that reveals some of the fundamental problems both with the first approach, but even perhaps, he hints, with the second approach. In the, in the little parable that he tells, he, he describes a, a poor youth, a, a poor boy, we might say, and an old and foolish king. And the, the old and foolish king uh, went uh, to the throne and and he himself had followed the same path as this poor boy. He had been born poor and eventually was made king. But, but the point that the writer is making is this, that king, once he gains his rewards, so to speak, once he comes into his own and accumulates this great wealth and power, actually becomes a fool. And, and what's going to happen to him is obvious. This poor and wise boy is going to take his place soon after. This is what he says in verse 15. I, I, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. See, here's the, the fundamental difficulty that the writer of Ecclesiastes gets at at the end of the chapter, that ultimately, whether you live wisely for and with others, and especially if you live foolishly for yourself. In either case, after you die, you won't be remembered, and someone else will come to take your place. Notice that in either of these approaches, as they are outlined in this chapter, there is not any ultimate sense in which the conclusion of chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, are, is avoided. In both cases, in both the foolish case and in the wise case, in the foolish way of living and the second wiser path of living, 
in the end, we have to say it's the merest breath. And that doesn't mean that nothing matters or that one way isn't better than another way. No, that's part of the the teaching, the clear teaching of chapter four. One way is better than another way. The joy of life can and will be completely sucked away if you simply live for yourself. If you look at people as objects and money as something that's to just be spent on yourself and your time as something that is for you. You only, not only will you find no meaning there, but he says you'll find no joy there. Bringing others into the equation actually does bring greater joy. And this isn't a surprise to us from this chapter because Jesus himself makes it clear that uh, thinking of others as better than ourselves is, is fundamental to his teaching. In fact, it's fundamental to the teaching of the law. Remember what he says in Mark 12, 31. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. We see the example of the Apostle Paul, who, def- who certainly looks at his life as something that's to be lived for others. He says, to live on in this body is, is a benefit to you and fruitful labor for Christ. And in The next chapter of that same letter, he says, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Consider others better than yourselves. And we need to consider that, but also consider the fact that absent eschatology, absent a kind of end goal that brings all of this uh, meaning and purpose, there is a kind of emptiness even to living merely for others as it's reflected in this chapter. We need eschatology in order to avoid the the final exam that's given to us in verses 13 through 16, the final conclusion that's introduced in this little section, this little story at the end. We we need to hear things like this from Hebrews chapter 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's essentially what verses 13 through 16 are about. And through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's only this kind of eschatology, this kind of understanding of what Christ has done that we can fully make sense of all of this. Yes, taken on its own terms, Ecclesiastes 4 teaches us a better and wiser way to live. That's something we need to hear, no doubt, and something we need to preach with clarity. But in and of itself, it ultimately is pointing us forward to something even greater. It's pointing us forward to things like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. You remember those words which should give shape to all of our lives. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? We might say, oh, verses 13 through 16 of Ecclesiastes 4, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What we see in this chapter is clear teaching on the better way to live one's life. But we also see a clear pointer to the ultimate realities, ultimate biblical gospel realities that give shape and meaning to all our life as they deal not only with this life, but also with the life to come, also with the final judgment, also with the resurrection of the living and the dead. In the meantime, with a view of that eschatology firmly fixed in our minds, how should we apply Ecclesiastes 4? How should we apply this clear teaching about a, 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 a foolish and a wise way? I think our confession gives us some clarity on this, some clarity into how and a, a, a vision of life with, with this kind of understanding, but with our eschatology firmly fixed in place, ought to look. Remember what it says in chapter 26 about our duties to one another. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services that tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, as God offereth opportunity, is to be extended unto all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We can say much more than simply it's better to live for others than to live for yourself, true as that is. We can actually look to the communion of saints, which is based upon the work of Christ on our behalf and looks forward to these eschatological promises about the return of Christ and death being swallowed up in victory and death's sting being taken away even now. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture which you've inspired and given to us. We thank you for your Spirit who works through your Word. And we ask that we would be challenged by this Word, that we would be through it more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and that we would look forward to those future realities which give shape and meaning to our life right now. Cause us to be focused more on the needs of others than ourselves. And cause us in so doing to have the mind of Jesus Christ. Looking forward to that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We thank you for these rich truths and for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Dismissed. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.